Welcome to the Working Together Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. Theater can be more than just a form of live entertainment. When theater is applied to education, social justice and social change, community building efforts, and so on, the power of its technique and its content can transform diverse social relationships for the better. This is Applied Theater. So in this episode of the Working Together podcast, I have a fascinating conversation with Dr. Warwick Dobson, who's an expert in applied theater. We talk about reminiscence and intergenerational theater and how myth can be used to help the community better understand its shared past. Dramatic technique, it turns out, is a vast storehouse of content and approaches that can be used to facilitate working together, no matter the context. I hope you enjoy it. I'm interested in um, you know how applied theater, in particular, works uh, to help communities come together and solve problems. Um, how it works as a methodology for people to use to kind of um, you know take on different roles to better understand and empathize with each other's perspectives on a given situation or problem. That's that's really quite interesting to me. So you know I was looking uh, at your work and I saw that you that you had some of that. So maybe to get us started, it would be great to kind of hear your story, your backstory in all of this and how you came to applied theater as, as a focus area for yourself. Um, well, I trained as a teacher originally in England, obviously. Um, and um, I, I taught in, a, in an elementary school classroom. Um, but I was trained as a, a, a drama teacher and what happens subsequently is that I, uh, I got hired um, as, a, as a drama tutor at a drama centre. Now, these places don't exist anymore. They don't exist in England anymore. They mm-hmm. don't exist in Canada for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was run by what was essentially the local school board, funded by the school board and offering a free service to all schools mm-hmm. within the district. So, I, you know, I was extremely fortunate because what that gave me was the opportunity to work with literally the whole age group. So one day I might be working with five and six-year-olds. The next week I might be working with um, postgraduate students at Newcastle Institute of Education. So, you know, that, that was just a, a fabulous opportunity mm-hmm. to get all of that experience under my belt. So... You know, I was there for seven years, and um, during that time, I got experience of working with the whole age range. Five-year-olds still frightened me to death, but, you know, I've kind of, uh, I find ways to avoid those guys. Um, but, but uh, you know, I, I enjoy working right across the age range. 
One of the other interesting things about the drama centre was its location. It was in a it was in a, a mining village, mm. which when I went was still active. One of the pits was still active. There were three originally. Two had, two had closed down. And one of the things that we were keen to do, as well as to offer these opportunities to schools throughout the district, was to offer some kind of community resource for the village. So um, what we did was we set up a youth theatre because the young people in this village always complained there was nothing to do. So basically, they would go out at night, they would steal cars, they would get into trouble. So mm-hmm. the idea was, well, if we give them something to do two nights a week, you know, that keeps them out of some trouble. Mm-hmm. So we set up a youth theatre. Um, and the other thing that we did was we uh, set up what was uh, quite innovative then. It was a community t- television project. And the idea was that we would work with three different constituencies in the village. The youth was one because we wanted them to talk about uh, and showcase the work that they'd done in the youth theatre. We also wanted to talk to the, uh, the miners' wives... Who, who were an interesting group in the sense that they, they were very much kind of housebound, mm-hmm. you know, and this was a community. I'm talking about the 1970s here where those mm-hmm. gender kind of differences were still fairly sharp. So we wanted to give the women an opportunity to, to talk about their experiences. And, of course, we wanted to uh, get the miners' perspective as well. So that what we did was with a group of uh, students from a local teacher training college. We, we set this up um, to begin on a Friday night to continue right the way through the weekend and that what we did was on the Sunday lunchtime we presented these three uh, short videos uh, at three community venues. So this kind of, you know, was a, was a way of extending the interest in education into much more broadly based community work. And these were short videos that they had recorded over those three days? Yeah, they, they, were, they were sort of 15, 20 minute videos that uh, really gave them the opportunity to articulate what their concerns were, what the issues were in the village. And, and you know, a, a lot of miners by that point had already lost their jobs because two of the pits had already closed down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the village was in danger of becoming a ghost town. So there was lots of, of, of discussion around that particular topic, which was very much a burning issue for them. So, so that was when I started to extend mm. my interest from just that narrow educational focus, school-based work, mm. into broader community uh, activities. Um, and... One of the things that uh, I subsequently did was I, I, I kind of got out of education and I actually uh, made the move into professional theatre mm-hmm. and I became the director of what was then a theatre and education company. And the idea of theatre and education was you have a group of professional actors and you take custom-designed product into schools 
So we would devise a program for, for example, nine to 11 year olds. And we would take that into the elementary schools. Then we would devise programs for high school students. So um, my remit uh, at the theater where I was based was to operate the educational policy, but also to, to look at, once again, broader community applications. So, so this theatre was in Lancaster in the northwest of England. Um, and the northwest had traditionally been a, a, a kind of... Um, the, the, the textile industry was, was kind of based there in its heyday. Um, and we, we, we actually devised or commissioned a play from a playwright to actually talk about the same thing as Backworth. You know, the idea that the mills were closing down, that people were being thrown on the scrap heap. And what we did was we commissioned a play uh, from a, a playwright uh, who was fairly local. Uh, and we taught this to the various districts within Lancashire, which is an enormous county. Mm. Um, so again, you know, it was kind of starting with education, broadening out into community issues. Um, and then I actually was hired at Northumbria University, which was one of the first universities uh, in the world, really, to actually set up. In England, it's called community theatre. Mm. Um, in North America, it's called applied theatre. Right. And the reason that the term community theatre doesn't fly in North America is because it means something quite different. You know, if you talk about community theatre, the thing you automatically think about is amateur dramatics. Right, yeah. So, so um, this term, applied theatre, was coined sometime in the 1990s. And... Um, in 2005, I came to UVic um, to actually head up the Applied Theatre Programme, which was just getting underway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've kind of... I don't love the term Applied Theatre, but I've sort of learned to live with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's probably a better term for it, but, you know, after lots of conversations with lots of people, after lots of beers, we've not been able to come up with a better... <laughs> A better term. It may it may well be that it changes, but it, it serves its purpose for now. So one of the things I wanted to do at UVic was to um, make a definition of applied theatre that could cover what my interests were, um, but but would would be broad enough uh, to offer opportunities to students to to spread out into other areas. The other thing that I'd become interested in in my time in Northumbria University was uh, reminiscence theatre with the elderly. Mm. Um, so so I, I came with those three sets of interests, really. The use of the drama and theatre in education, broader community uh, applications, uh, and specifically reminiscence and intergenerational theatre. So we set about crafting a definition that we thought might be not all-encompassing, but broad enough to cover the sorts of things that I felt qualified to do, because in those days I was a kind of one-man band. Um, There are two of us now. 
So, uh, you know, the program's grown somewhat. The definition that we came up with was that uh, applied theatre is theatre used for extra theatrical purposes, which, of course, begs the question, well, what are extra theatrical purposes? Mm -hmm. So we, we refine that by saying, well, it's education, it's uh, social justice and social change, and it's community building. So they're the three broad areas that we've tried to develop at UVic. Um, we have a specialism in applied theatre for undergraduates, and in 2006 we started a graduate programme. Uh, so we have master's students, and we also have doctoral students who are pursuing studies in applied theatre. So that's how I came to be here. That's the background I brought with me. And, you know, we appointed a second applied theatre practitioner two years ago, uh, Kirsten Sadegi Yekta, whose expertise is in working with theatre in conflict and post-conflict zones. Um, so, so she brings a whole new dimension to the program. Mm -hmm. That's expertise that I don't have. She doesn't replicate any of my areas of specialism. So between us, we, we have quite a broad spectrum of interests, which are attracting increasingly more and more interest from graduate students. We have another uh, one, two, uh, three graduate master's students coming in in September um, to add to the eight or nine that we already have. And that's, that's a big cohort for two people to manage. And so give me an idea of what some of these grad students in the past might have worked on for... I, I, would, would it be a thesis, or what would they be working on as their kind of final project? Usually um, we, we, we don't encourage grad students to do the thesis option. They can, you know, if someone came to me and said, Warwick, I really want to write a thesis. Um, I, I, I would try and discourage them because applied theatre is a practice-based discipline. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like education where you can go and do action research in the classroom and you can kind of come up with, with data that proves something or other. Um, so what, what we, we don't insist on, but we encourage grad students to think in terms of uh, project-based uh, work in the second year. Obviously, in the first year, they have to do the their coursework. Uh, second year, they move on and they design and develop a project for themselves in line with the interests that they've developed. Sometimes in line with the interests that they came with, mm -hmm. but more often than not, I mean, if, if it's a good program, what you're doing is you're broadening people's horizons. You're wanting them to look at other possibilities. And usually someone will come and say, oh, look, I'm interested in uh, looking at the uses of theatre for teaching English as a second language. And all of a sudden they say, you know what, I'm really interested in nurse education. <laughs> can, we, can we switch that? Mm -hmm. And that's why I say, you know, when you write your letter of intent, you say, this is what my research interests are. And that doesn't commit you to anything. What it does is it, it gives me a sense of whether I can be of any help to you. But the likelihood is that during the course of the first year, you're going to be exposed to other things and your interests might change and that's when the focus of your project might change. 
So some of the projects that that we've um, we've kind of had uh, students involved in in the past is um, intergenerational theatre. That's where you actually put younger uh, people together with the elderly, and that that's that's a, a kind of offshoot of reminiscence theatre, mm-hmm. which was something that we we introduced quite early on. Um, and um, the uses of theatre in leadership studies. Um, some of the master's students have, have looked at, um, you know, using theatre and drama techniques with indigenous youth. Um, museum theatre. Mm-hmm. So, so basically the field is wide open mm-hmm. and... Um, as long as I feel that I can offer something useful to grad students, then I'm, I'm inclined to want to take them on. Sometimes, you know, you get, you get a, a grad student whose interests really are outside the bounds of what I'm comfortable with or outside the bounds of what Kirsten is comfortable with. And those people, we, we suggest they look elsewhere. And there are, there are other graduate opportunities. Not many in Canada. For applied theatre? No. Mm-hmm. Um, Concordia has an applied theatre master's program, but it's really quite closely connected with therapy. Right. There are some institutions in the US. Um, CUNY, City University of New York, has a applied theatre master's program. But most of them are in the UK still, mm-hmm. and increasingly in Australia. Interesting. So we're getting uh, interest from across across the globe. We've got our first English student coming here in September. We already have students from Nigeria, Australia, Thailand, the Philippines. So people are finding out about us, you know, from mm-hmm. far and wide. So I'm, you know, I'm curious, uh, and this is this is gonna seem, I guess, obvious but to you, but I'm curious for myself and for the listeners you know, what is it uh, what is it about the dramatic experience um, that people would be going through uh, in these, um, I guess extra theatrical settings that, that helps in some way you mentioned that there's uh, programs that are quite linked with therapy and other places Concordia uh, but then you also mentioned a lot of your students are working on these leadership angles, First Nations, things like this. So why why is theater um, so potent in these circumstances, and how is it used to drive change, to drive social change? Because it's an inactive medium. You know, we don't just sit around and talk about things. Mm-hmm. What we do is we devise workshops that invite people to to take an active role in tackling an issue that's important to them, or we devise uh, performances that mm-hmm. are of particular interest to different constituencies. So, so the idea is that it, it gives them a different perspective, but it gives them much more positively an active experience. It's not just sitting around talking. It's not passively thinking about things or writing about things. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's 
inviting people to actively engage. And sometimes people are really very nervous about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I work in that building across the, the, the way there with 150 theatre students. Now, none of that is of any kind of... Uh, it doesn't produce any fear in those students because they, they're there and they want to be there because they're interested in theatre. But if you want to try and engage a group of men at, for example, Victoria Men's Trauma Centre, and you want to involve them practically in an active way, then that's a whole different ballgame. You really need to find very gentle ways Mm -hmm. that will encourage them to take a risk because that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can be quite a delicate Operation. You, you, you're looking for very gentle ways in. Mm-hmm. And there are all sorts of applied theatre techniques that, um, that we use. Some of them are... They, they, they kind of exist on a spectrum. And at one end of the spectrum, there are, there are, there are conventions that are active, you know, really very active, the sorts of things that theatre students would do all mm-hmm. the time. But at the other end of the spectrum, there are a whole range of conventions that are... Are, are much more geared to spectatorship. So when you're dealing with a constituency that's nervous, mm-hmm. when you're dealing with a constituency that says, I don't know about this drama stuff, what you do is you start to involve them at the, at the spectatorship end of the spectrum. Right. Yeah. And, and, and what you find, usually, not always, because there, there have been some kind of spectacular failures as well, I'll tell you about one of those in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that, that gradually you, you ease them along that spectrum so that, you know, before too long, they're quite happy to get up and they're quite happy to, be, to involve themselves and be engaged in the, the drama. The one group that we can't somehow manage to, um, to engage... Uh, despite the fact that I, I've got a psychologist who's who's very very interested in this, are um, servicemen with PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a grad student a couple of years ago who was really very interested in that. She had a personal connection because her grandfather, she thought, had uh, come back from the Second World War with PTSD. Well, of course, it wasn't called that then. It was called. Uh, no, no, kind of shock or some other kind of phrase. So we, we, we contacted a psychologist at the Esquimalt uh, Forces Base um, and, and, and he was very interested. But despite the fact that we met with the men on, on two occasions, they were very, very reticent, very, very nervous about it. And You know, the psychologist said what you have to understand is that one of the side effects of PTSD is is people lose motivation. You know, it's much more easy for them to say, oh, I'm not going to go out tonight, I'm going to stay home, I'm going to watch TV, than actually commit to a workshop where, you know, they they think, they think they're going to be asked to relive those experiences. Mm. And that's where that therapy line comes. We don't do therapy. 
You know, I'm not a qualified therapist. If you're going to do drama therapy or you're going to do psychodrama, what you need is a psychologist, someone who understands emotions. I don't have that. Kirsten doesn't have that. And so what we say to the students is, you know, there is a line. We, we stay on the applied theatre side of the line. We don't stray into the therapy area. And so you find probably, I mean, the reason why you're having to articulate this line is probably because you're finding that people in these situations, as they begin to play out different roles and leave themselves at the door, so to speak, they're also maybe uncovering some, some deeper elements of themselves, especially in the PTSD situation. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that's happened really in the last, where are we, to 2016, the last 10 years really, is that the, there's been a real shift in applied theatre practice. You know, if you, if you think back to, you probably remember December 2004, the tsunami that hit the southern coast of India and Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Um, and James Thompson, applied theatre practitioner in the UK, was one of the people that went out to Sri Lanka in the wake of the tsunami. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he describes in his book is what he calls the trauma industry descended on Sri Lanka. Um, You know, the approach of the trauma industry is always, we have to get you to talk about these terrible things that have happened to you. And often they don't want to. It was enough that they lived it. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily want to relive it, and you don't necessarily want to re-traumatise them. So... What we've, what we've been doing in the last 10 years is, is, is trying much more indirect approaches. So, you know, we, we wouldn't have gone in to those guys with PTSD and say, you know, tell us about what happened in Afghanistan. Because that's dangerous. What you do is you look for uh, different ways in. And, and what I always say to the students is, look at myths. Look at folk tales. Look at fairy tales. Because they're always all about something that's very, very important. Something that's very central to the human condition. And if you can find the myth or the folk tale or the fairy tale that connects with the experience of um, the people that you're working with, then, you know, what you're going to do is you're going to involve them in activity that they don't they don't think is directly about them but but ultimately you'll get there so the best example that i can give you of that is we've worked at the um the um halfway house which is um they they run a program for 12 weeks where a group of men and they're all men are transitioning from prison life to life back in the community. So one of my, wasn't a graduate student, it was a fourth year student, said, I'd really like to work with these guys. Um, I said, that's fine. What are you going to do with them? 
So, I mean, she, she'd been listening to this mantra that I had been going on about, look for, look for stories, look for tales, look for myths. And she said, I want to do something based on the myth of Persephone. Now, Persephone was the daughter of Demeter, who was condemned to spend six months of the year in the underworld and six months of the year with her mother. So I said, why do you want to use that myth? And she said, because um, she has to transition all the time, back and forth. And um, what made it really powerful for these men was the fact that she, she actually, she had a, a, another student, an actor working with her, and they got the men to create the gates to the underworld. Really very simple, you know. They, they created the gates with whatever was in the room, tables, chairs, anything they could lay their hands on to create this structure. Um, and then she, she set up this uh, improvisation where um, Persephone is, is at the gates and she is asking for permission to go to visit her mother. Um, and and they, they set up a, a kind of trial. And um, one of the guys said, as part of this trial, you know, of course she should be allowed to go. She, you know, she made a mistake. And one of the other guys said, I made a mistake once. It cost me 20 years of my life. So that what what that guy is doing is connecting his own experience to the issues that are raised in the story. Mm. But, but, you know, nobody said to him, tell us about these last 20 years. Mm-hmm. So that what you're doing is you're, you're, you're finding those indirect ways into getting people to examine the issues that are of concern it, to them. It really, um, it really makes me think about how ramble so bear with me here but I, I see you know on the one hand the therapeutic approach can be good to help somebody open up maybe in a more private situation um, but it's also kind of um, modern in a sense right because you're just asking them to recount their own memories and their own singular individual history in relationship to an issue they have whereas what you guys are doing here through myth and through fable and all of these things is you're kind of going to a pre-modern you know zone of thinking about it right where you're saying here's a story that has lasted for ages in its in its form it's never been changed and it's been able to help people understand their lives through it and you're saying now let's see how these these ancient tales can play out in ways that are therapeutic for people that don't necessarily have them thinking of their own individual histories per se, but they're kind of associating themselves with this bigger bigger narrative, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't want to draw that line as being too hard and fast. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with therapy. Yeah. You know, I've actually done psychodrama courses and I've got a, a, a kind of understanding of how it works, but I still wouldn't do it without having a trained therapist with me. Um, so one of the things that we say is that, you know, okay, there's therapy over here, there's applied theatre over here. Now, 
often what you're doing in applied theatre is, you, you know, you, you, there's something inherently therapeutic about it, but it's not therapy. You know, so that was the point about, you know, the guys in the halfway house. And you can, you can use these stories with really quite modern technological issues. There's a, a colleague over in the curriculum and instruction department who was looking at cyber aggression. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we were interested in seeing if we could find a way to, to address the question of cyber aggression for middle school kids because middle school kids that's when they're really beginning to establish for themselves an online presence mm-hmm. um, so we, we started to cast around for a story that um, would, would, would parallel what happens when you know someone kind of picks on you online um, and what we decided was that we would take one of the tales of the Knights of the Round Table so there's a story about, I think it's Galahad, it may not be, but one of the knights um, is, is, is accosted by Queen Guinevere, uh, and he turns her down. So that what she starts to do is she starts to spread rumours about him all through the court. And of course, that's the perfect analogy, right, for somebody who is, mm. is being bullied mm-hmm. uh, online. So we, we devised a workshop which was, which was not about cyber aggression. It was about this knight mm-hmm. who was bullied by Guinevere. So there, there are all kinds of ways that you can go with this stuff. Okay, so there's, yeah, there's a few places that I want to go with this now too. This is very interesting. So uh, when you, one, when you talk about devising a workshop, I curious to hear about what that process looks like for you um, and then two uh, you know when you guys are looking through your toolkit of myths and, and folk tales and things like this is that you know something that you uh, that people in applied theater study or are you kind of leaning on your colleagues in English and these other spaces to say oh you know this myth or this folk tale might be applicable here well you know, the, the Greek theatre is all about myths. Mm-hmm. So we have a ready-made storehouse of myths in, in the students here in their first year all study the theatre of ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do... There, there are some really very interesting kind of studies that have been done. Um, there, there's, there's a book that's really... It's over 100 years old now by Vladimir Props called The Morphology of the Folktale. And what Prop says is that, you know, there are only seven stories in the whole world, right? Um, but what folk tales are, are variations on these seven stories. And there are stocks of characters um, that you find in, in, in all of these folk tales. So I, I, when we get in the fourth year, I'm kind of thinking about this with a bit more kind of momentum. You know, I'll, I'll get them to go and read Prop. And, you know, there's, there's, that's not the only one. That's just an example, but there are other things. Essentially, we, we kind of rely on our own resources. What I try not to do is say, oh, have you thought of this myth? Are you going to work with these people? Have you thought of this myth? I want them to come up with the stories, mm-hmm. the legends, the myths, because that's how they will need to function when they get 
out into the real world. Interesting. So the, the, the workshops can take a, a whole variety of forms. I mean, I can go into uh, a classroom and I can do a workshop with just myself. Um, one of the tools that we use a great deal is, is something called teacher enroll, which teacher is enroll. basically, yeah, where the, the teacher steps in and out of role in terms of the drama. Um, so, so sometimes, um, you know, if we're doing, uh, again, this is, this is something that we're doing, we're doing a drama about Cinderella. Um, and, I, and I just do this on my own. What I do is I set up a series of conventions which helps to establish the, the household in which Cinderella lives and works. And I take on the role of the, uh, the Lord Chamberlain of the household. So I'm not the head of the household. I'm not the Duke. I'm someone that's in the middle. So the idea is that I can step in and out of role. If I need the role of the Chamberlain, I can do it. If I'm just orchestrating the different elements of the workshop, um, I could do that too. The other way is that I actually use students in role as part of the workshop. So the, 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 the thing I just talked about with... Um, the Knights of the Round Table, is I actually went in with um, a female student playing Guinevere and a male student playing Galahad. I'm pretty sure it's not Galahad, but it doesn't matter. Um, and, and, and what we do is we, we set up some kind of scenario at the beginning that, that this is where, you know, spectatorship, the class just watches. And what you do is you then start to ask them what they've noticed about Guinevere's behaviour. How do you think Galahad's feeling at this point? And then gradually you look for ways to draw them in. So the workshops can take mm. lots of different forms. Um, and, and one of the things that we try and do, particularly in the second and third year, is give people the opportunity to work in pairs or small groups to devise and develop workshops. Because it's much easier if you've got someone to as a sounding board. Mm -hmm. It's hard to plan and prepare something on your own. I expect that in the fourth year. And I expect that in the grad courses. Planning on your own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but not, um, not before that. You know, one of the things that we we do is we make sure that everything that happens in the first year happens in-house, you know, on the basis that the students need to be protected from the community at that point, or, or you know, more importantly, that the community needs to be protected from them. <laughs> so it's not until the second year right. that, and the second semester in the second year that we give them the first opportunity to go out and work with a specific targeted group. Maybe the elderly, maybe a reminiscence theatre project, maybe um, we've done... Uh, a project with an organisation called Heart to Heart, which is a, um, 
a support group for survivors of, of heart disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the first time that they actually get the opportunity to go out and try their skills in a real community setting. And then gradually, third year, working in pairs, going into schools, fourth year, individual projects, which are um, always best when someone has a personal connection to what they want to look at. So I had a girl last year who was diagnosed with diabetes when she was 11. So she said, I I want to go and find a diabetes support group and I want to devise a workshop. You'd think that wouldn't be too difficult. They're actually very hard to find things like that. But anyway, we, we persevered and... So I said to her, okay, we've got your group. What are we going to do? You said, Alice in Wonderland. I said, why? Well, because when you're diagnosed with diabetes and you're 11, your whole world changes. You know, Alice goes down the rabbit hole. The whole world is different to everything that she's been used to. So she developed this workshop which did have a performance element in it as well. Mm. That was all based on incidents from not just Alice in Wonderland, but Alice Through the Looking Glass as well. And it was an absolutely fantastic piece of work. And that's because this topic meant so much to her. In a way, would you say that it's because she's almost occupying a bit of a quasi-director's role as well, right? And being the facilitator, but also being... Uh, the one who's helping to arrange the entire piece as a performance. And yeah, and one of the things that we, we emphasize is that, you know, if you want to be an effective applied theatre practitioner, essentially you need two sets of skills. You need the theatre skills so that you can devise plays uh, and direct them if necessary. But the skills of a divisor, someone who can put together a play using a group of actors. And the other thing you need to be is a skilled facilitator in order to plan, develop workshops and to you know, actually go into a community setting and engage people in practical activity. If you've got those two sets of skills, you've got chances of becoming an applied theatre practitioner. Interesting. And there's, there's huge parallels here between various other types of group work, you know, like when you were talking about um, essentially stage fright, right? The fear that some people have of performing in front of others and the steps you take to kind of lead them closer to active conventions. Is that what that, I think that was the word you used. So a lot yeah. of the tools that are in that side of the kit, you couldn't get them there until you facilitated them over to that other space. So it, it is different when you are working amongst community members as opposed to actors. Actors, you know, <laughs> I never did go into drama myself. I wish I did. Um, but I always remember seeing the classes from afar uh, in high school and such. And, you know, they seem like very exuberant people <laughs> with extroverted personalities kind of out there, right? Um, so it's a, it's a little different when you enter into a group where you're suddenly having to 
you know, deal with deal with folks who aren't comfortable necessarily with speaking out. They're more introverted. And I'd say that's the same um, skill that you need when you're doing any kind of group work in a professional setting as well, is to be able to somehow bring people along step by step into a position where they're more actively participating in what's happening. And every group's different. Mm-hmm. You know, what worked last week with this group isn't necessarily going to work next week with that one not necessarily going to work with that group again the same approach so you constantly need to be reading the group Mm -hmm. you need to be keeping field notes you need to be noting down they seem comfortable with these kinds of activities they weren't quite prepared to make that leap yet So that what you do is you, you, you go back to your notes, you say, okay, well, this is where I'm going to start. Um, and what I'm going to try and do by the end of this workshop is actually see if I can get them to make that leap. And sometimes you do it, and sometimes you don't. And sometimes you get really nice surprises. You know, you think this group is really tough. I remember when uh, the girl went to the halfway house, I remember saying to my wife that morning, because I always go in with them, um, I said, I hope I'm not throwing her to the lions here. And I went in, and she was consummate. She was so assured. She planned it in the kind of detail that gives you the security to take those steps. And these guys were eating out of our hand inside 10 minutes. You know, it, it, was, it was amazing to watch. Mm. You know, and, and, and she was not necessarily one of the typical brash, loud theater students. We got lots of those. Um, but she was, she was just, she was very quiet. She was very authoritative. And they just lapped it up. So you, you have to know your group. You have to know what approaches you're going to try. You're going to have to be aware that they're not all going to work. And one of the things that you always need to be able to do is change direction. Throw the plan out the window. Hmm. Um, you know, you've got this wonderful plan step by step. You know, this part five minutes, then ten minutes. And, and then, you know, inside three minutes you think, it's not going to work. you have any good stories from your uh, past experience? Well, I mean, I give you what, one of my um, potentially disasters. It wasn't a disaster in the end. But when I was the director of the theatre and education company, we had a participatory programme. I had five actors who were all part of the, the, um, the programme. Um, and the, 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 the class, we were working with one class at a time, um, were 12, 13-year-olds. And, and the premise of the programme was that the, the, they were all a group of nomads. And the idea was that every year they would take their cattle from the grazing grounds into the city to sell a proportion of the cattle that would be able to uh, subsidise them uh, for the rest of the year. 
And on this particular day, I was, I was facilitating, and, and the nomads got to the gates of the city. Now, in, in the way the program set out, basically they get to the city and the gates have been closed on them. So, um, you know, one of the actors breaks the news that, that the gates are closed. We won't be able to get the cattle through. Um, and, and they say that if we approach the gates then, you know, they'll, they'll open fire. So I'm saying to the, to the class, well, what are we going to do? They said, oh, we're going to the gates. I said, do you think that's a good idea? You know, they're, they're threatening to open fire. No, we've got to get the cattle in there. We've got to get, you know. I said, okay, so um, I drew a line on the floor. And I, I, I did it through narration. I said, and the nomads began to approach the gates of the city. And as they were approaching, the general said to them, stop. And I stepped into the role of the general. He said, you've been told that if you try to enter the city, we will open fire. I said, yeah. I said, just look at the rocks around you. Can you see metal glinting in the sunlight? Yeah. I said, they're rifles. And they're all trained on you. And if you take one step over that line, they're under orders to fire. And you would think, ah, well, that's that. You know, they're not going to do that. And of course, what do they do? They step over the line. I said, and in that moment, as the nomad stepped over the line, 200 shots ran out, and all of the nomads were killed. And they all fell down. And then there's an hour to go. And so all your nomads are dead. What, what, what are you going to do for an hour? So that's when the plan, you know, is out the window, mm-hmm. right? So... I had to find a way to um, not to resurrect the nomads because that that's magic, right? You can't do magic. Mm-hmm. But what we did was, I said, okay, well, let's let's think about the nomads that have not travelled with you, and they've heard the story. What will those people? say to their children in 10 years' time. And so that what we did was we developed a whole scenario about, you know, the history of this particular event in the lives of the nomads and how it was retold to the, to the children in the future. So you, 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 you've, just got, you've just got to... You've got to think on your feet. You do. Yeah. And that's something that comes with experience. I mean, you know, first years, they'll be exceptional first years if they could do that. But by the time they get into the fourth year, I kind of expect that. Not always to be able to come up with an alternative, but just to, you know, say things aren't always going to go according to your plan. And if they don't, what are you going to do about it? So this storyline of Nomad's, it's making it's 
piquing my interest back to something you said before we hit record, which was that you had worked elsewhere as well, outside of these settings in North America and in, and in Europe. Did you want to talk a little bit about the project that you did, and was it Africa? Was that India? India. Well, it it was um, there was a um, PhD student. Mm who's just successfully defended in the last few months. Um, and his expertise was in intergenerational theatre, so he had worked with a company uh, when he was doing his master's programme at the University of Alberta, um, a group called Jerry Actors and Friends. Um, and so what he was interested in doing was extending his experience um, of working with intergenerational theatre so I I had a is actually someone who taught me long 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 time ago um, who worked for uh, Help Age International which is a, an NGO that is kind of responsible for it's the umbrella organisation for, for, for groups like there's a Help Age Canada there's a Help Age India so um, I had spoken to Michael, and, and, and he had said that, um, again, after the tsunami, um, they, you know, the amount of money that HelpAge India received um, from donations after the tsunami was, was enormous. And they said, well, what, what are we going to do with this? And at Michael's initiative, he said, let's... Uh, set up an elders village so Help Age India set up this elders village called Tamaraculum and what he said was he thought that that would be a good venue for some reminiscence theatre work or for some intergenerational theatre work Mm. so my PhD uh, student Gus I said do you want to do this in India he said yeah. So anyway, we we kind of entered into negotiations with Help Age India. Um, he went out there three times to meet with officials of Help Age India to visit the village, uh, to meet the elders, and to really check out what the possibilities were for trying to uh, set this theatre company up. So they were very keen, the elders' village were very keen, but then we needed uh, a school, we needed young people. And there was, um, you know, all, all of these people, the elders in the village, the children that eventually came on board were impacted by the tsunami, if not the children themselves, the families. Mm-hmm. So we found a school called the Isha Vidya matriculation school which was about a 40 minute drive from the elders village and these children are all first generation learners which essentially means that they're the first people in their families to have gone to school to have had an education right so they are in this school they're learning english they the intention is that they're going to be bilingual um and we actually set up a relationship between the elders' village and the school. So what, what we did was we, we set up a field school where 
Goss went with Goss was the PhD student with with twelve students, one master's student, and eleven undergraduates, and they went out there to act as consultants in the setting up of this intergenerational theatre company. So they worked with the elders, they worked with the children, and gradually they brought them together and they created a number of scenarios that were... One was actually about uh, one of the elders' experience in the tsunami, and he really wanted to tell his story. Mm. The others were, were, were kind of much more indirect... They, they were kind of local traditional stories that in some way connected with uh, the stories of the tsunami. So, so these guys went out there for three months, from September to December, end of September to December in uh, the fall of 2014. I went out for six weeks, spent time with them to see what was going on. Um, and in the end, they, they, they built this absolutely stunning performance that was performed. There were about maybe 12 of the elders involved in it, um, something like 25 children, mm-hmm. and was performed on this magical night um, for the rest of the elders' village, and for the parents of the children who were involved. Um, And the hope was that this would be the beginning of an intergenerational theatre company that would continue after the field school was over, after we'd left. And and it did for a while. It's going through some difficult times now Mm -hmm. um, because personnel's changed and... um, it's, it's been difficult to sustain. But it was a, an experience for those students. that It was life-changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, they will never, ever forget that. And we, we, we were keen to, you know, keep up the tradition of field schools. And Kirsten, who, was, um, who had done some work in Nicaragua, was interested in setting up a field school to take students there and then of course the Zika virus hit so that kind of put all of those plans on hold but you know what we've tried to do really is to is to expand from from you know small scale local projects we've done some work with um province-wide organizations and and then we kind of we we took the step to to go international with the tamaraculum project in india so it's you know and i think that's probably what's one of the factors that's attracting people from different parts of the world to Mm -hmm. come here the fact that there are these international possibilities one of the ma students who's just about to um, start in September uh, wants to spend her second year uh, at a school in Zanzibar in Africa so you know they're the exciting projects for kids to be involved in mm-hmm. you know no, it sounds like that experience for those elders and those children must have been so singular that one magical night where they got to reenact 
so much and perform in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that kind of experience uh, is so rare for people in our, in our day and age, and I can only imagine even rarer still for people who are in third world countries, especially after a massive traumatic event like a tsunami struck, right? So, you know, I'm, a, lot of, a lot of what you've said leads me down this path of, you know, applied theater is very much this kind of, you know, almost uh, um, not entirely rare, but it's, it's this very special event that happens, especially if there's a performance that's involved. Um, and beyond that, what, what then happens to that group after they've kind of experienced that together? Uh, are, they, are they given tools that they can then set that same thing up elsewhere? Or is it more or less that once that group of people have, have kind of done their performance that it begins to dissipate and you have to restart with a new group of people? One of the things that I always say to fourth-year students when they're you know, looking at projects that they're going to do is, you know, what, what are you going to leave behind? What's your exit strategy? Mm. You know, because you can go in there, you can do your workshops, they'll have a great time, but what happens? You're going to graduate. What happens then? Does the project die? Do you leave something behind that is a reminder and an impetus to continue? So one of the things you always need to bear in mind is what your exit strategy is. Um, But you're right, sometimes, you know, the best exit strategy in the world is not going to work. And unless there's somebody there on the ground who's prepared to take it on, prepared to embrace it, one one of the real strengths of the Tamaraculum project was that um, the, the guy who was responsible for the village was just a fantastic facilitator mm. so you knew that you could leave it safely in his hands because he had all the skills he learned from the students a lot of different kinds of techniques and conventions and, and when you've got somebody like that, then you've got chances that the project is going to have a life after the students have, have left. Mm-hmm. But it's always, always a bit of a gamble. Um, and again, you know, it's like the plan. Sometimes you just have to throw it out the window. Sometimes you just have to accept that, well, it was a good experience for those 12 people for those six weeks. Mm-hmm. But there's no... There's no lasting um, benefit. And sometimes that's actually, in reality, how these things actually are. You know, I've done lots of uh, discussions and interviews with people who've done all sorts of different programs. And time and time again, I hear similar themes like the timing and the circumstance and the people in the room and everything that it was just right for that moment. And so therefore, you know, although the program might still exist now or the project or whatever might still be in existence or maybe it isn't, either way, even if it is in existence, it's changed fundamentally. It's not the same. It doesn't have the same kind of, you know, feeling to it. I think, it, I think 
it is rare that you see that. And the thing that's attractive about what you've described so far is that uh, um, it's almost built in that the experience is going to come to a closure in this kind of performance way, that there is a, that there is this performance, this celebration, in a sense, through that performance, that then closes it out. And it might not be so important that it continues on because you've had that singular moment and experience for those people. And maybe what needs to happen is that a new singular moment or experience needs to kind of emerge naturally or... or, or um, and that's the nature of theatre, of yeah. course. Theatre is e- ephemeral. You know, it happens one night and then um, you're even a run of three weeks at the, in the Phoenix there. You know, there's always a last night... Mm-hmm. You know, and the thing closes down, um, and that's that's the nature of theatre. So you know, we I don't think we beat ourselves up about it, no. but what we do try and do is um, we we try and establish context and a relationship that we uh, might pick up again at some future date. So the the halfway house. We still have good connections with them. Um, you know, the possibility exists for us to uh, to go back in there. Of course, it would be a whole different group of men because they, they're there on a 12-week program and then hopefully they're ready to go out back into the community. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we try and maintain those relationships. Um, and that's important because... You know, there are new students all the time uh, and they might well pick up on some of the projects that have gone before. Mm-hmm. So that's what we hope anyway. So what, you know, I'm just mindful of our time here. We've had a really good conversation so far, I think. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of what you said... Uh, is making me just very aware of how much applied theater, um, you know, puts puts the group of people that you're encountering with those methodologies in different roles and different capacity or, or different uh, positions within the theater directing moment, depending on their capacity and their level of fear, basically for for connecting with one another. Um, and so these workshops they sound like uh, very interesting and very um, you know, difficult art forms in a sense to facilitate and pull together. So maybe uh, one thing that I think would be really good to close out our conversation with would be, um, you know, some key lessons that you think would be transferable to other spaces from those uh, experiences that you've had in the past, as well as seeing your students have um, setting up these workshops. Uh, you know, using myth and things like this to help define a problem indirectly and and facilitating people towards getting to a point where they're either comfortable being in the workshop together or, um, as you say, in some instances, setting up a performance. So I'd be curious if you have any lessons that you'd like to share with our listeners about that, about working together in these contexts. I think it, it is it is a big question, but but you know it's an important one because um, you know if I could if I could condense everything that we've learned here at UVic in the last twelve years, um, it would be good. But it, it 
you know, it wouldn't do justice to the breadth and the diversity of what we've, what I think we've achieved during that time. I, I think key lessons, and I've, and I've mentioned some of them before, are, you know, I talked about the plan sometimes needing to go out of the window because it's kind of outlived its usefulness. But what, what I also say to students is it doesn't mean you don't plan. You know, failing to plan is planning to fail. So you've got to have the plan um, and, and you've got to be flexible. You've got to get to know the group very quickly because sometimes you don't have a whole lot of time. You've got to find a sensitive way of making that approach, making that relationship, so that they will feel comfortable involving themselves in the work that you want them to do. And then in terms of performance, there aren't, there's not a, a, a kind of corpus of, of plays that you can go to. You know, it's not like you can say, oh, I'm going to work with, um, um, you know, teenagers who are at risk of offending. Oh, well, there's, there's all these plays that you can go to. You, you, you don't have that resource. All you have is you, a group of actors, a sense of what you're trying to say to these people, and you've got to make it up, literally, from nothing. You start with an idea and you build it and you build it and you build it and of course the the, the, the the absolute joy of working in a building like Phoenix is there are never a, a shortage of people looking for projects to do mm-hmm. you know we have the main stage season over there and basically what that does is it caters for the acting students but you know there are another hundred students in there who aren't acting students but who are still hungry to do theatre and often want to try their hand at doing theatre outside of a traditional theatre building. So that resource is always there and, you know, you can rely on theatre students to be creative, to be imaginative and to really put their heart and soul into something once they're sold on the idea. Mm. So there's that community that, you know, the thing that we've tried to do, particularly with the, with the graduates, because sometimes being a grad student can be a fairly lonely existence. Mm-hmm. What we've tried to do is we've tried to build a sense of community so that at any given point, the grads in the program are mutually supportive of each other. But, but more than that, ex-grads will always take opportunities to come and see the work that the current graduate students are doing. And that sense of community is entirely in keeping with applied theatre. You know, that's what you want. You want to build a community um, amongst the grad students, but also with the groups that they're working with. And that's something that we've paid a lot of attention to. And it seems like, yeah, like you were saying, it's one of the main goals of applied theater itself, working in communities to help bring community, build community capacity. Right. So one final bonus question here, I guess. It's a big one. Um, applied theater, 
what do you what do you see as its as its future impact? What do you see as its uh, you know where it's going to kind of get the strongest foothold in our society and, and really kind of reverberate out and ripple out? I think what's happened here at UVic is is a reflection of what's happening throughout the applied theatre world, really, and that is. You know, 20 years ago, the idea was that applied theatre projects should be local, small-scale, take place in, in, in out-of-the-way uh, venues. Uh, I think what, what we've done is we've started to open all that out. And I think, you know, the, the idea needs to gr- grab a foothold that that we, we can have an international presence and that the applied theatre work can have an international dimension, which I think 20 years ago was unthinkable. Hmm. So moving into the development kind of spheres and the, and the um, international aid side of things? Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. But I think that whole world is, is out there waiting to be discovered. I think we've only just scratched the surface of what's possible internationally. Mm. And I think that's where efforts are going to be in the future. You know, particularly in this whole, um, you know, development that Kirsten has been part of, you know, looking at the uses of theatre in conflict and post-conflict zones. And and currently, of course, you know, the the refugee crisis, Mm -hmm. uh, which, which just crosses international borders, as well as... Um, one of my current PhD students is looking at internally displaced people as well. They're huge. They're huge issues that mm-hmm. that need to be addressed, and I think can usefully be addressed by applied theatre. I learned a lot, Warwick. Good. <laughs> that, that was uh, that was a good conversation, and we've we've certainly run the gamut for sure. Thank you, Warwick. Thanks, Stefan. Dr. Warwick Dobson is the University Scholar in Applied Theatre at the University of Victoria, British Columbia, in Canada. From 2008 to 2014, he was also the chair of the theatre department. And before coming to the university in 2005, he worked as a school teacher, drama consultant, teacher educator, university professor, and theatre director. As well as working in Canada, Dr. Warwick has worked extensively in the UK, Europe, and the United States. He has written some of the standard works on theatre and drama in schools, and a number of articles on applied theatre. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash theworkingtogetherpodcast, all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. And don't forget to rate and review so that I can continue to bring you the social innovation goods. Finally, if you'd like to receive the weekly Working Together Review newsletter, where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economic strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com.